Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. This is part two of our two-part series on Biosphere 2. Um, this is definitely one of those that if you didn't listen to part one, you really need to go back and listen to part one because this is very much the uh, uh, the second helping on this topic. Yeah, although we will attempt to give you like a two-minute rundown on this. All right, uh, talking about a desert arc. Yes. In, in around 1991 to 1993, talking about eight people dressed mm-hmm. like Star Trekkies. Yeah, kind of in a... Uh, ascending from a cult-like structure that was very much uh, in tune with in, in environmental ideas and gazing beyond planet Earth to possible uh, terraforming of other worlds. Yes, and submitting themselves into this desert arc, this biodome, so that they could try to accomplish this kind of terraforming task. And as you say, a, a sort of culty-like uh, group, th- these people came out of... Um, all under the management of Johnny Dolphin. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's actually the pen name for John Allen, who was the group's leader. And this eccentric Texan millionaire, Edward Bass, who funded the whole $200 million project. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in, indeed, kicking this thing off, you have vision, you have finance, and uh, you end up having one of the, the biggest... Uh, scientific mega projects you could you could ask for certainly to come out of uh, out of the private sphere yeah because again we're talking about more than seven million cubic feet here this biodome we're talking about five different habitats mm-hmm. an ocean a desert a rainforest and turn and also an agricultural area yeah uh, beautiful agriculture and all of it all of it just created by like some people at the top of their field they didn't skimp on this it wasn't somebody just trying to recreate um, technology out in the desert. They were bringing in great mines, uh, put a lot of money yeah. into this, and it was meant to last a 100 years with a revolving cruise as we would continue to learn from the biosphere and perfect the technology. But after uh, two years, our, our eight biospherians emerged, uh, very underweight, I would say. And orange. <laughs> and orange because of their diet. Uh, but... You know, they survived and, and they learned some things about that. But, uh, there was so much momentum and really money that was caught up in this project already that there was a second enclosure experiment that began in March 1994. But, you know, as we discussed in the first episode, the, the first, the first mission was kind of a bust. Yeah. And the second one was doomed from the start. Yeah, they, they really gave it, I mean, the, the first mission, they went the full, uh, two years. They, they, they stuck with it despite all of the problems. The and infighting. The infighting. The cockroaches. The, yeah, the cockroaches, the just spiraling collapse of everything, the, the extinctions. It was a, everything was in just pretty bad shape. But then, yeah, they, but they, they pushed on and they said, all right, well, let's spruce it up. Let's get some new people in there. Let's go to phase two. But it was very much like that, uh, that final date in a relationship uh, where maybe one side thinks that this can still work. You know, we still got it. We still got the magic. And the other side has arrived at the dinner to break up. This is the money man, right? Yeah. This is Bass. And uh, he, Edward Bass, at this point, is really frustrated by the growing costs and the lack of communication. Because, again, yeah. as we had discussed in the other episode, there's the this lack of transparency. Yeah, the PR is bad. And so he tries to seize back the property with the help of federal marshals. Now, days later, two of the original Biospherians tried to sabotage the experiment. 
opening the doors to the outside. So just after seven months here, mm-hmm. the second phase, the second enclosure experiment, it ends. Yeah, I mean, the energy alone has been has been sullied, you know? And yeah. so much of that first uh, uh, venture, that first crew, that first two years in the biosphere, too, it was sustained by that energy, I feel. And without that energy... With, with that tarnished, I mean, it's just not going to go. Yeah, and at points you could even say they, they may have achieved, you know, briefly for minutes, <laughs> you know, a utopia. They've had those waterfalls. They were they were actually harvesting wheat. They were sustaining themselves. Yeah, but, you know, it comes to any utopia idea is ultimately a, a tragedy story. You know, we these utopias exist in our, our stories in large part so that they can fall. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with bias. And too. what I love about this too is it's such a microcosm of the corporate world because you know the the first mm-hmm. crew it all it all goes to to hell in a handbasket so to speak. And what does management do instead of saying, "Oh, you know, we should reassess this project or maybe just stop doing it." They mm-hmm. say, "Oh, it's just new people we need. We need yeah. new energy in here and they get a new crew in." Yeah. Um so bad management happening. So what happens to our sparkling treasure in the desert? Well, one of the key things here is that you, even without, even with all this failure behind us, uh, it's still a fabulous structure. It's still a fabulous facility. I mean, it's, it's unparalleled. There's nothing else like it on earth. So it's extremely valuable. It's not just, oh, let's doze it. Let's turn it into a mall. Uh, like that's not the, the first idea, uh, that anyone, uh, turns to. Uh, and certainly even with the, with the, the problems that occurred, even with this, you know, the, 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 the failure of it, uh, it still means a lot to the people who conceived it and paid for it. Sure. And a lot of them stay with the project. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean the Biospherians themselves, although some still consult with it. Um, in December 1995, Columbia University takes over the lease. And those rice paddies and sweet potato fields, the sweet potato <laughs> fields that sustained half of their diet the first year for the Biospherians, those are pulled up and cottonwood trees are planted in their place. And researchers partitioned off the giant greenhouse varying the conditions in each area. So that was one of the criticisms of the original project, that there was no controls, even though you could say there were some controls in place they were trying to control the atmosphere. So university or Columbia University begins to study how changes in temperature at different heights of the tree canopy affect leaf respiration. And they start to look at different species of invasive ants that had snuck in and try to figure out um, you know, some of the, the reef building in the ocean and how to monitor that. So you get these inklings that, hey, maybe we can repurpose some of this. Yeah, yeah they, and they, they seem to be hitting their stride just around uh, 2003, uh, but that's when it in, the, the lease ends. And, uh, and then it ends up kind of being shuttered again. One of the problems here is that, um, is that it was still really costly. Uh, $600,000 per year, mostly for cooling to run this thing. Yeah. And, uh, there's stuff that the university wanted to do that they couldn't do because they quote unquote couldn't break it. You know, they, uh, there were limits to how much they could, they could mess with the, uh, with the infrastructure and with the environments. Yeah. And it's still tied to John Allen, right? Right. So he's only going to let people mess with it to a certain degree. Yeah. And it's still all essentially on loan from its owner at Bass. Yeah. Yeah. So after 2003, it essentially just becomes a kind of roadside tourist attraction. And at the same time, there's this robust suburb springing up around it. And, and it's just a ghost facility. Like yeah. they say, you could, you could look through the windows and you'd see like pins still sitting on desks, you know, it was just. Right. Yeah. You know, haunted yeah. by the ghosts of, uh, 
of really the ghosts of the, of the, the, the spirit that went into it. Yeah, it's just beautiful decay at this point. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about rebooting the biosphere. All right, we're back. Um, now, as you know, at this point uh, in its uh, history, it was sold to Wonka Industries, and they began mm-hmm. creating chocolate there. No, no, not really. The, the end. <laughs> the All end. right, if uh, you have any thoughts, you can always email us at... No, but in reality, we hit uh, the year 2007. And uh, then we finally begin to see some movement again, uh, and this comes uh, from the University of Arizona. Uh, and, and this really came in the nick of time, because at, at this point, like you said, condos were springing up, and the facility was at real risk of being bulldozed so they could put up some more condos. So University of Arizona steps in, they take over the lease, and in 2011, uh, after they've been working on it for a while, the building was officially donated to the university, and Bass ended up contributing $20 million to help get the project off the ground. Because again, you know, he was he was never he he was still in, invested in it, not only financially, but but invested in the spirit of it. Like I feel like this is a guy that didn't want he didn't want that 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 uh, that biosphere two to become. Uh, the Biosphere 2 condos. Yeah, because I think at the end of the day, he he believes in the project and understood that it could have long-term impact. So it was great that University of Arizona stepped in. And in 2007, they really did become interested in it because they wanted to study the relationship between the desert and the ocean. And they found that the Gulf of California, the closest marine environment to the Sonoran Desert, could be studied in the biosphere uh, the, the ocean's environment that the biosphere had. So for them, it was like this big moment of, ah, okay, we could really figure out what's going on in this certain body of water by emulating it here in a controlled environment. We can mess around and we can get some really conclusive data. And moreover, you also, by the way, have this 7 million cubic foot <laughs> atmosphere, this artificial atmosphere, which is the largest of its kind in the world, and is really the only place where you can kind of study these sort of things in earnest. Yeah, so while the original ocean was meant to 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 uh, be reminiscent of the Caribbean and all those coral reefs, uh, they, they end up saying, well, let's take a more local model and install it in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get a little less spaceship with the biosphere, too, uh, and, uh, and focus more on studying a more immediate environment. Yeah, and more immediately, which we'll talk about in a little bit, this idea that you can you have like a, a model that is expressing itself over a matter of days rather than years. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they could test out marine technology, which was really helpful. Yeah, so you end up with a, a mini ocean, a scaled down version of the the Gulf of California, uh, and uh, and you end up with uh, like starfish, sea urchin, small reef fish, uh, and bottom dwelling sharks called uh, the horn shark, and they really want to get Humboldt squid, squid in there as well. Heck yeah, uh, yeah. Those are awesome. Um, so what you see here is a legacy that's beginning to develop because now the Biosphere 2 has spawned something like 150 papers, right? All these different studies that are going on. It's proof that people could indeed exist in a completely closed system, a manufactured system. Uh, yeah, they suffered depression. They became incredibly thin, but they survived. Mm-hmm. And so this was also a precursor for isolated, confined environment psychology. And Biosphere 2, really, according to David L. Chandler, writing for Wired, demonstrated that ecology can be a science. So previous to this, we weren't really looking at uh, land, air mass, and the intricacies between them and the ocean to figure out how the environment was sort of doing this tango 
uh, with these different elements. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, you, you, in, in science, you learn from your missteps as well as, uh, as your successes. And this was such a, a an enormous project with such an enormous, uh, you know, reach that, uh, that, that you end up with having all these lessons that pop up and, and, you know, that just had not occurred before because no one had tried something like this. Yeah. And Chandler says that, um, you know, no one, no one had ever really essentially made a giant test tube mm-hmm. with full control of every variable. And he said, you know, biosphere made complex natural systems more like chemistry and physics, something researchers could experiment on instead of just observe, which is key. And there's also this idea that biosphere two may not be much of a spaceship, but maybe it's a bit of a time machine. Yeah, because you can go back and you can look at the data on the carbon cycles and see the areas areas in which scientists can better understand interactions between chemical elements in the atmosphere, particularly when it comes to carbon fluctuations in tree canopies. Because consider this, even though a single carbon atom might cycle in a few weeks or years on planet Earth, decades may pass before, say, a rainforest in Brazil affects, say, a farm in Iowa. But in Biosphere 2... These kind of conditions can be studied at a much more rapid pace. So the same carbon cycle would take just three days before one biome was affected by another. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And again, studying the world in small to better understand the world at large. All right. Let's tick through some of these findings that came out of Biosphere 2 and also kind of maybe accidental findings. You know, I mean, some of them obviously were done in earnest, but a lot of this stuff reminds me of Stephen Johnson when he talks about innovations and how they will spiral out and and no one can really predict how one innovation can come in and affect everything else. Exactly. Exactly. So one thing that we learned here, again, we mentioned that uh, that fabulous uh, ocean environment meant to uh, mimic the Caribbean with coral reefs. Uh, well, we learned that coral reefs are salvageable. Marine biologist uh, Guy Ailing uh, oversaw the artificial reach and reef. And again, this was the largest ever constructed um, and in the process, she learned lessons for managing ecologically stressed reefs in the real world. Uh, you know, these are environments where they're, you know, they're, they're continually suffering from fishing, from dumping, from diving, uh, uh, adventures that are damaging the fragile, uh, uh ecosystem of the reef. Uh, so we're able to, 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 to learn how to save our actual reefs by studying them, uh, within Biosphere 2. Yeah, and uh, again, David L. Chandler, writing for Wired, says that complexity is not maybe as, well, he says complexity is no obstacle, but I would say it's maybe not as much yeah, as I, an obstacle. Because I feel like Biosphere 2 does have a lesson of complexity as an obstacle. It um, does, it does, that, that things will collapse. But he says the point here is that while some species died out, bees, for example, which of course we know is important for pollination, he says the system balanced itself remarkably well. And we have seen that, too, when we looked at some of the rewilding studies. Yeah, I mean, they say nature finds a way, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, But one of the, the, the big concerns for humanity is, will nature find a way without us? All right, another big lesson uh, is that massive spacecraft will hold their air. Uh, again, space was very much on the minds of uh, the designers of Biosphere 2 and, and on, on the minds of those that ended up occupying it for those two years. And the project was one of the largest sealed structures ever built. And yet, the overall air leakage rate was less than 10% per, per year. Uh, the big take-home, of course, was do not use concrete uh, when making your spaceship because it, it ends up sucking up that CO2, uh, which the plants need to produce oxygen, which the humans need to stay alive. 
another finding, human beings can eat less. Well, we know that already. Mm-hmm. But the, the point here is that Roy Walford, who conducted the first reliable long-term experiment on caloric restriction in biospherians, found that they got the nutrition that they needed with less food, really, and they emerged with improvements in blood pressure, cholesterol level, and other health indicators. Okay, they might have become uh, overly obsessed with food mm-hmm. and a bit depressed, but hey, they, they did. They survived. Another big one is that waste can be recycled. So again, for two years, they're all in there. They're producing waste, uh, as well as waste uh, from the, the goats, the chickens, and they're recycling all of this through natural low-tech filtration methods. So the work... That was uh, that was done in Biosphere Two along these lines uh, was pioneering, and it led to a, a number of very successful subsurface water treatment systems that are now used uh, in Mexico and other developing countries. Also worth noting that uh, you look back on how they were recycling their sewage uh, and, uh, and, and 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 you know and then redrinking it uh, once it was purified, purifying it through plant, soil, atmosphere, and machines. They were doing this back then, and it wasn't until 18, late, 18 years later in 2009 that NASA announced total water recycling on the International Space Station. Now, you know, it's not necessarily one-to-one on that scale, but again, coming back to that comparison between the, the synergist-powered uh, movement that leads to Biosphere 2 and the more uh, controlled environment of, say, NASA. Now, one of the rarest microbes ever found was discovered in the waters of the Biosphere Ocean and this amoeba is called Euhyperamoeba biosphericae, and it thrived because there was an absence of natural predators. So the lesson here is that even though you might have really strict biological controls in place, you just don't know what is going to show up. That's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah, you have this contained environment, with, uh, and you, you don't know how all the variables are going to shake up. So you might end up essentially with a stowaway. Um, another big uh, take home here is that uh, sealed ecosystems have a future. Um, Biosphere uh, projects spawned uh, a number of imitators, uh, each with its different spin. There was, the, for instance, the Zurich Zoo uh, reproduced a piece of the, piece of the Madagascar rainforest. Uh, the Biosphere Foundation, uh, which can, can, is actually uh, uh, contains some of the Biosphere team, uh, are currently planning, planning to build uh, simulated habitats for prospective Mars colonists. Because, again, the individuals involved in in biosphere too. Uh, they didn't just, they're, they're, it's not like their spirits were all crushed and they said, all right, I guess I'll just be a banker. I guess I'll just go home <laughs> right, and run right. a hardware store. No, they, they, for the most part, they all remained within the fields that brought them to biosphere too and continue to work with some of those synergist ideals in their minds. Yeah. And if you want more information on the, on biospheres and, and the future of them in terms of space exploration, I know that tech stuff goes into this topic a little bit deeper to try to figure out like what stuff was actually viable can that you can take from biosphere two and mm-hmm. some of the um, 1960s and 70s biosphere experiments from Russian and American scientists. And, and what did they learn from that? So check that out if you're interested. I also wanted to point out that Jane Pointner, she she emerged as the lead scientist. In fact, I think she was the only degreed scientist um, among the biospherians. She, along with her husband, Tabor McCallum, and their company, Paragon Space Development, has had experiments flown on the International Space Station, the Russian Mir Space Station, and the U.S. Space Shuttle, as well as working on underwater technologies with the U.S. Navy. And she's also worked on projects to mitigate climate change and grow crops in um, some typically arid and hostile regions of Africa and Central Africa. So 
So as you have mentioned, these are people who are passionate about not just the project, but their respective fields. All right, so there you have it. Our two-parter on Biosphere 2. And I really hope here at the, the end of the day, you know, now that you've, you've given this topic a chance and then really, uh, you know, let us chat into your ear for a while about it, that you have a new respect for what they set out to accomplish, uh, for some of the ideas that went into it and ultimately what we end up gaining from Biosphere 2. That it wasn't just one of these sort of VH1 remember the 90s missteps. It was, it was more than just a footnote. Uh, in the uh, in, in the the cultural history of America, yeah, that if previous to listening to this, your only reference to this was Polly Shore's Biodome, uh, we hope that has now been replaced with this <laughs> this amazing, ambitious, uh, really innovative project that that should get its due for the impact that it's had on the scientific community. Yeah, indeed, and really should be. I feel like it should have it, it should be inspiring more and more projects. There should be. It's a story that should have influenced, say, fiction more. We should have, you know, more fictionalized accounts of 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 what this consisted of. It should have influenced uh, uh, our science fiction and, and and even horror more. I see shades of it here and there, but not uh, not the profound impact it feels like it should have had. Yeah, I cannot believe that there's not a full scale documentary on this, mm-hmm. and I can't believe that more of the biospherians haven't talked about their experience beyond Jane Pointner. Because this is really a window into an amazing time, and it has all of the elements, I think, that that make it a fascinating story. I mean, you've got the cult angle to it. You have science. You have the science fiction angle. You have this idea of terraforming, and, and then you've got the psychological component that, and I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, that inspired the TV series Big Brother. Yeah. Yeah, so in, in that respect, it certainly had its pop cultural resonance. But, but, uh, but yeah, like why has, uh, you know, the, the Scientologist and L. Ron Hubbard have seen their, their altered form, uh, take cinematic shape in The Master? Uh, why not the synergists? The synergists are far more interesting and, uh, far more, uh, beneficial to, uh, to human culture, in my opinion. I dare say fun loving. Yes, fun loving too. <laughs> or science loving. All right, so yeah, once again, thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com uh, because that's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, uh, as well as a cool image gallery of Biosphere 2. Uh, so if you really need some images to go along with what you've heard here, check that out, and those those images will take you to a different time, a different place, and a different spirit. And if you have thoughts on this, you can send them to BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.